Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Being the secret of, you know, any success or sort of joy that I've had in my professional life has been because I've genuinely been interested in it. And I think when you demonstrate that, you, you know, you find other people in that community who care about the stuff as well and, you've, and, and you can have a very rich experience. Today I'm talking to Kirsty Gogan, who is Managing Director of Lucid Catalyst and the co-founder of Energy for Humanity. Kirsty lives in Dulwich with her husband Anthony and two children, Sylvia and Max. Welcome, Kirsty. It's lovely to see you. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. You grew up in Dublin, first of all, and then moved to the UK to Leamington Spa. Tell us a little bit about what you were like as a child, what you enjoyed, what you didn't enjoy. Oh, God, uh, big hair, freckles, strong Irish accent. It was awful. <laughs> it wasn't that easy arriving in the UK, actually, at that time, 1985. Still the sort of the, the height of the troubles. And, you know, there was a lot of conflict between Ireland and England at that time. It wasn't that long before when you'd still see signs on the doors of shops saying no dogs, no Irish, just to give you an idea. Now, I was lucky to move to Leamington Spa, which is a really actually incredibly multicultural town with a, with a big Irish community, as well as a big Sikh and Hindu community, and obviously close by to other big multicultural cities like Birmingham and Coventry. But even so, it was a bit of a bucket of cold water to arrive in, in such a such a new place. And I think it made me more resilient and perhaps, you know, gave me some skills to be able to go into new situations and, and find my feet. Yes, I, I can imagine it must have been a big culture shock. And also you're going into a school where you don't know anybody and all the other children seem to know each other. So you might feel a bit on your own and stuff. Different accent as well. I did make really, really close friends, some of whom I'm still really close friends with today. In fact, one of my best friends from, from that time just lives about 10 minutes walk away. So tell us about what were the subjects you enjoyed and what you didn't enjoy at school? Were you academic or were you more sporty or artistic or sciencey? Or I wasn't terribly sporty. I'm still more of a yoga person than a sport person, but I really enjoyed English and languages. And for science, I was really uh, enjoyed biology. And I think actually looking back now, a lot of that, those preferences maybe came as much from the rapport that I had with the teachers as anything else. You know, some teachers were really inspiring. And I, I regret now a little bit not having been more engaged on maths and, and, and the other sciences, because in my career, I've ended up working with a lot of technical experts like you. And, you know, I try and keep up, but, you know, I think I'm trying to encourage my kids to become much more literate in those subjects um, much earlier than I was. So anyway, so, so you, you finished school. What did you do after school? To be honest, I was desperate to leave home. So I took a year off and I moved to a different town and landed a job. And at that time, really what I wanted was a bit of freedom and to earn a bit of money. And I was lucky to land a job, basically opening a new opticians. So I was, I was the manager of an opticians, which is really random. And 
it was quite daunting. I remember on the day that we opened, someone came in and they needed a, a spare screw. That a screw, and I said, come back in, in 15 minutes and I'll fix it for you. I ran down the road to another opticians and asked them to do it. because. <laughs> well, that's resourceful. <laughs> so I, one thing I can say is I've always been resourceful. It's certainly taught me to learn on the job and get the hang of it. But it, there came a time when I realised this isn't really what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so it, it was really only some months later that I, as I applied to university and, and off I went. So you went and you read politics at the University of West of England, Bristol. How did you find that going into the university sort of first year fresher? How did it feel? Oh, just fantastic. You know, really, really wonderful city, the sense of sort of independence and finally moving into a learning environment where I, I felt like I'd have a lot more sort of intellectual freedom to really engage with material rather than the school environment I found to be, you know, a bit more sort of like learning repeat, learn and repeat. And I was really hoping that in the university environment, there'd be more opportunities for, you know, d- debate and discussion and really sort of, you know, having a more philosophical engagement. So I certainly found that. University is very much that transition into thinking about things for yourself and making your own arguments, you know, your own logic and, and, and challenging each other's perspectives. So it sounds like you really kind of welcome that and engaged in that. Yeah, I loved that. I couldn't really get enough of that. And, you know, I chose a good course because it was quite diverse. So there was economics, sociology, politics, you know, some sort of history thrown in there. So I really, I really enjoyed it. And one of the subjects that really caught my attention was nationalism, as well as feminism and other interesting topics like that. But I was fascinated by the idea of the way that history and politics was being taught really very much from a UK centric perspective and especially looking at the sort of the Berlin Wall coming down and the end of the Cold War and the way that that story was told it made me want to go to those countries and find out for myself what the perspective was of the people who had lived through that revolution and who lived through that historical time so that's what I did next after university I went to live in Romania. Right so it it sounds as if at university, you you kind of almost found a purpose or a motivation in you that you'd been sort of looking for before, and that spurred you on to take risks, to travel, and to do different things. Is would you say you changed that way at university, or was it always there? Do you think? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I I, I think I was even like I became vegetarian when I was age ten, and I'd all had a you know quite a strong sort of animal rights environment and social justice sort of lean in fact my my good friends at school we we were we were teasingly called the rainbow gang because we were we were so righteous <laughs> about about things and you know I was talking with my dad when I was at school about what I wanted to be and he and I said yeah I think I want to be a social worker because I want to help people and he said well if you really want to help people maybe think about going into politics instead because that way you can help at the sort of structural macro level rather than, you know, trying to help people once they've really become sort of, sub, you know, disenfranchised by the system. So that's what led to me choosing politics as a, as a degree. But the, that strong motivation was always there. Wow, that's that's really good because, you know, what, what you did next really played to that passion in you. So tell us about leaving university and then you went to Romania. 
And when I finished uni, I wanted to travel, but I didn't have sort of independent financial means. So I needed to find a way of traveling and working. So I, I, when I make big life decisions like this, I often like to try to have two options sort of in play. And one option was to go and teach English in a private school in Japan. And the other option was to be funded by the European Commission to go and do grassroots environmental work in, in Eastern Europe and actually in Romania. And as they were both coming through, having two options that were really, really different from each other, a bit like flipping a coin. So by making these two options potentially real, it helped me realize actually I wanted to go and do the environmental work more than teaching in a posh school. What did you learn, you know, putting yourself into that very different world? Um, I, I brought way too much stuff with me because I had no idea what I'd be able to buy in the shops. So my dad still teases me to this day about the size of my rucksack that was, you know, bigger than me as I set off on this adventure. And I was, I had already met a friend of a friend who was in the coordinating office in Amsterdam, who was running the grant. And so she'd actually spent time in Romania and was the one really who inspired me to want to go. She said, it's incredible in Europe to see a country where people are still getting around on horse and cart where they're still using natural building materials. They still have very, very seasonal food markets. And as an environmentalist, this was kind of an idealized world, really, you know, to think that these sustainable practices still existed. And, and then, of course, there was also a network. So I was lucky that, you know, we'd ha we had established a sort of grassroots network of, of, of environmental NGOs. And the people that I went to work with were my age, and incredibly inspiring because they had grown up in a country that didn't have a civil society in the way that we have in the UK. So there was, because they had grown up under Ceausescu. And so when the totalitarian regime was toppled, they were inventing the idea of starting civil society organizations from scratch without having had the benefit of being immersed in that growing up. So I found it really inspiring. And we did wonderful projects. We planted a forest which I recently visited 20 years later, and it's grown. So we did wonderful things and spent lots of time in the mountains and nature. And yeah, it was, it's always a little daunting setting off on these adventures, but people are generally good. That's what I found. But then you, you did come back to the UK and tell us a little bit about what was going through your mind around what were you going to do next and how did you want to use this sort of passion in you? Um, back in the UK? So I'd had a wonderful time being an environmental activist, doing lots of good work, I think, and at the same time, beginning to feel that I, I wanted to make a, dif a difference in a different way, I suppose. And, you know, particularly feeling a little bit like we were operating outside of the, the system. So one of my university friends was working in a government press office and they were looking for freelancers. And he said, why don't you come in and try this? So in I went and was working as a sort of freelancer in a, free, in a regional press office in London, stay, sleeping on his couch and got recruited quickly into, into the sort of central government press office and was very delighted because it was the Department of Environment, which is exactly where I wanted to be. And I thought, well, if I go inside the system, maybe I can actually have a more influence in a different way and, you know, betraying the tribe by going to work for the, you know, the enemy. But, you know, actually, of course, what you find when you go inside 
any other tribe, you find there's other people there who are really motivated by very similar objectives and indeed are bringing about meaningful change, but just in very different ways. So how did you sort of cope with that, that sort of transition? Because that's a big thing, isn't it? To be part of one community with, you know, sort of fierce loyalty and a, and a real, I guess, cause and mission and all of that, to be seen to be going, as you said, into what they might say is the enemy camp, as it were. Did You must have a very kind of strong core belief in you that it was the right thing. Did you? How did you cope with, with that transition in that sense? Yeah, it's interesting. It's been a bit of a defining thing that I've I have sort of gone from tribe to tribe throughout my career, and that was one of the first big leaps that I took. And it was it was a scary thing to do. Um, and ultimately, I just I felt like I knew that I was acting with integrity, and I had a a sense that I might be able to make a useful difference if I kept my sense of of integrity and my true friends my real friends would would recognize that <laughs> and that's broadly what happened so you spent some time uh, in the press office there and you were then a uh, senior press officer for uh, John Prescott there must be some interesting times you had during that period yeah gosh that was that was fun that was a very fun time i mean it was it was quite a shock to go from the sort of activist world into a very formal professional environment in the first place you know find i found myself sort of sitting in the ministerial office and it was very stressful trying to work out even what to wear like how to get dressed to work in an office it took some getting used to so there's some there's certainly some norms of behavior that you know you have to sort of really pay attention to and learn very quickly and working for John Prescott was an absolute privilege and a joy to be honest um, and Yvette Cooper was a junior minister for, in our department at the time uh, taking first working minister to take maternity leave at the time and you know, clearly, very, very talented and full of potential even then. And it was it was enormous fun. And the great thing about working with with John Prescott for John Prescott was that he was genuinely very, very motivated in a very authentic way on environment and social justice issues. And that's what drove the agenda that he led in the department around sustainable communities and regeneration and. I was really fortunate to be able to participate in that agenda and, you know, lead a lot of the work on on sustainability because I was sort of personally motivated by it. And I think that was been the secret of, you know, any success or sort of joy that I've had in my professional life has been because I've genuinely been interested in it. And I think when you demonstrate that, you, you know, you find other people in that community who care about the stuff as well. And you and, and you can have a very rich experience. Yes, that, that that's right. And that's one of the things where your sort of passion takes you into different worlds and that there's risk, you know, in those sorts of movements. But to have that thing where you're doing something which you feel personally is important and perhaps gives you energy. So, you know, you're motivated at the end of the day, you're still full of energy. It's not draining you. I was, it was really interesting working with journalists in the press office and understanding they weren't out to kind of get us, although that was, that can feel like that sometimes when you're on the front line of government press office. But, you know, they're all under their own pressures and working to time deadlines from their editors to write stories about things that they may not know much about. So, yeah, it was a very, very fun way to spend my 20s at the sort of heart of government and 
So then you, you did move on. You you did a, a Master's of Science in Business Strategy, Politics and Environment at Birkbeck in London. And then you moved on to a number of different roles. Tell us a little bit about that sort of phase of your journey. Why did you want to go back and do more training, you know, in terms of the Masters? And then why did you move out into Futera, I think, wasn't it, as head of PR? I, uh, yeah, so I, you know, it was partly to redeem myself for not having done brilliantly at school. And you know, because I'd sort of by that point really figured out what I was interested in. And so I funded myself to go back part-time. I was I was working four days a week and doing lectures in the evenings. And so it was it was a pretty demanding couple of years, but it was incredibly valuable to be actually working and studying at the same time because it was an almost, almost an opportunity to be applying in real time what I was learning. Took me quite a while to find the to find the course that I wanted that was a good fit. And when I found it and wrote to my former supervisor at Bristol in my original degree, you know, I remember I studied politics, and he said, "Oh, what are you doing now?" And I said, "Well, I'm actually working for the deputy prime minister." And he was just like, "Holy moly! One of my students is actually working in politics." <laughs> he couldn't believe it. <laughs> it's probably not the usual outcome. That made his day, I'm sure. So, so, so you did all that together, and then you spent some time within uh, the Department for Energy and Climate Change, and and I guess that sort of passion for the environment, for energy, and how the two, you know, interplay around carbon emissions and all of that stuff. You were influencing some of the uh, the policy work in DEC, were you? Yeah, yeah. So as you said, I I went, you know, I went in back into consulting. I went back into the nonprofit sector and. You know, I'm fairly agnostic, really, about the sector that I'm in. It's much more about the agenda and the outcomes. And, you know, my my master's degree was about the intersection between politics, industry and civil society. And that's really been what my the shape of my career is sort of the, the intersection between those three things. So when I left, I left my very demanding, but very wonderful consulting job at Futera to have a baby and you know, with a small baby, I didn't want to go back to working in the office until midnight. And, you know, which was the kind of demands of a small business, you know, that wasn't really the right fit. So I was looking around for a consulting job and by coincidence was given a copy of Professor Sir David Mackay's book, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air, which I always mention. And my my husband, Anthony's aunt, was a very good friend of, of David Mackay um, because they were in Cambridge together. So bless her, she brought this book to us, which I think was just out or just about to be published as a wedding present. And that really opened my eyes to, you know, to the to the scale of the energy challenge and really how difficult it will be to to solve climate change without just with renewables alone. So I, I had up until that point, due to the kind of the work that I was doing with John Prescott and so on, focused a lot on built environment. But this was really my first sort of, like paying attention to energy as an issue and shortly after that was I had been invited to interview for a job at the Department of Energy and Climate Change for a one-year contract and I thought brilliant that's just right up my street and they said oh but actually there's a catch it's in the nuclear directorate and of course as an environmentalist I had just always had a sort of default anti-nuclear position never really interrogated it but just had that as part of my identity. And having read David Mackay's book, I'd begun to really question that and think, oh, hang on, actually, I, do I have a sort of 
rigorous evidence base for this position <laughs> or is it something I've just inherited as part of my identity so so I decided to do the job and again take that sort of that leap into into a unknown and also again to the sort of horror of many of my friends to go work on a nuclear issue thinking well somebody else might do might do this job who doesn't really care and I'm going to go and do it and I'm going to bring a lot of integrity and challenge and come to my own conclusions and so here I am that sort of nuclear theme has grown if anything I think in 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 what you do because you you spent time in the NIA um, the Nuclear Industries Association I think it's probably when we first met it I was, suspect yeah. Into the lion's den, I went after that. Absolutely, absolutely in, the, in the lion's den. Did you find it, I mean, it's really interesting, this question around relationships and people, because as you said earlier, you, you, you left one tribe, as it were, to, to move, you know, to the enemy working within, within government, but then you're almost leaving another tribe to work in the nuclear sector how have you found that because that that must have some tough conversations some difficult things to work through sort of i guess on a personal level with people of friends and colleagues and, and and all of that how have you found that as you can probably tell and you know i've quite a lot of personal conviction and because i i know that that's very strong in me i try really hard not to sort of impose it on other people <laughs> unless they really want to know. And so for a lot of my friends, unless they ask me about it, I don't, I don't sort of force the conversation. And some friends haven't, you know, spent years never mentioning it or discussing it with me. We just talked about other things. And then they've come to me and said, you know, actually, I've been thinking about this because I know that you're really passionate about this and you've really arrived at a really different perspective. And I, it made me wonder how that's happened because they know me well enough to know that I've probably had a good think about it. So, and then with some friends, it's caused conflict. Other, some friends, they have had real issues with it. And there's been difficult conversations. And that's sad, you know, when that happens. But that's really rare. That's been really rare. I'm glad to say. I think people will see in you that, I guess, integrity, because you are one to think things through for yourself and to come to your own views and to act with integrity along those lines. It sounds like, you know, throughout your whole life, you've thought seriously about these big global issues. You've moved around, moved country to understand these things even more, um, and always been open to learning new things as well and reading new books like the David Mackay book and so on that have influenced you. Yeah, really, uh, you know, that's what we all can do, isn't it? I think, you know, that's what I encourage people to do, you know, in, in my advocacy around nuclear energy as a climate solution. I'd really just encourage people to read read the literature for themselves and come to their own conclusions. That's the that's the best thing that anyone can do, not not to be persuaded, you know, by me. Yes, but to have a sort of open mind and take that, just look at the evidence. Yeah, yeah and be intellectually honest, you know, um, which is easier said than done for all of us poor flawed humans, you know, puny humans. And, you know, I always try and judge myself before I judge others. Yes, yes, that's really good. So, so you're currently managing uh, Lucid Catalyst and help uh, sort of founding Energy for Humanity and the great websites and great information on, on, on all of those. 
what what when you look forward what what's what do you see next in your journey oh gosh you know i would i would love to feel like we'd made enough progress on climate change that i could start doing something else <laughs> i'm not saying i'm going to solve it but you know i feel like we we as a species really need to start making a lot more progress someone was um reminding me about gandhi visiting manchester and someone asked him what do you think about western civilization and he answered i think it would be a good idea <laughs> and it's a bit like that with the clean energy transition so that's what i've been dedicating my my sort of whole waking life to in the last few years and i love it and i'm incredibly fortunate to work with incredible people like you and and many others um and at the same time, there's lots of other things I want to do. You know, I, I would like to work on on animal rights and poverty, and spend time with my family. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's easy to get overwhelmed sometimes, isn't it, by the scale of the issues we face out there, but also our responsibilities, you know, within the home and with family and friends and so on. Do you do you manage to ever? sort of switch off from the big issues? Are you able to do that? Or is it something that you find very difficult? Oh, I love watching comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely have got workaholic tendencies. There's no question about that. Um, but I think when you, you know, you know that saying, if you love what you do, you never work another day in your life. And I, I, I find it very rewarding and and I'm very, very fortunate to to um, be working with people who are really my close friends as well as my colleagues and and have an incredibly supportive family. And so, yeah, I guess I do try and also go outside occasionally to, to see nature. So just thinking about, I guess, maybe that little 10-year-old who is leaving Dublin and coming to the UK, Leamington Spa, if you could whisper, you know, a bit of advice in her ear, knowing what you know now to encourage her, what, what do you think you'd say to her? Mm, it's going to be all right. Yes, that's a lovely thing because you just don't know at that age. You really don't. And so many things feel devastating and big. And with the fullness of time, you realise that, there's you know, most things we do we can get over and we can move on from and especially things that you know if you've got your health and the people around you that you love then you can get through almost anything oh that's lovely Kirsty. oh it's been lovely to chat to you thanks so much for your time on this oh, it's it's a really lovely idea thanks so much for inviting me it's really kind If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.